It's not often I get to hit things during worship service. But this is Christmas. I'm used to Christmas times where uh, in the past I have led orchestras and choirs, and I always played the timpani during the finale thing. And I did this one time, I wrote this program, and we they orchestrated in Nashville, and we recorded with the choir and everything. And then I brought it, and we, we did this whole musical, and I played, and they, they brought out the TV news crew, and, and they did this whole long interview of how this musical came about and everything. Else. And, and the two lines that, the line that ended up on the news, you know how it goes. It says, I like to sit back and relax and hit things. I mean, that's all that was, that was all that was recorded by, the, they were just looking for the sound bites. So. Uh, I love Christmas. I, I love seeing the new faces and the families coming here. I know last week uh, we had, and uh, this week we've got different people in visiting. I love that our decibel level at our house is about four times what it usually is because of all our grandkids and they love to play. And they go from toy to toy and and they are all cousins and they love to, to interact and and I love to see the years of investment and their mom and dads and watching my daughters become mothers and I just love that whole process of what God has in store for us as we serve Him and you know, he's in this for the whole, the whole thing for us. He's not interested in just a little piece of our lives. He's interested in the whole of us involved with him. And uh, he has a lot of relationships that you, he uses to describe our relationship with him, father, and husband and wife. All the, the relationships that we hold the dearest are all really just shadows of the relationship he desires with us. And that's an amazing thing to me. If God is all into this relationship, I, I really believe that we need to be all in too. Amen? So I just have a simple message this morning uh, from the book of Jude. If you want to turn to the book of Jude, it's right before the book of Revelation in the New Testament. I don't know that I've ever heard a sermon on the book of Jude. Maybe I have. But it's very similar to Second Peter in its content. In fact, a lot of the phrases are very similar. I don't know if Peter preached the sermon and Jude took notes and he decided he was going to preach his own sermon and, and uh, how that works. Jude is a brother of Jesus, half-brother of Jesus. Jude and James... They wrote a couple books in the New Testament, James the brother of Jesus, and then Jude the brother of Jesus. And Jude wasn't a believer in Jesus during his ministry, but later came to be a believer when he finally listened to his brother. I don't know if there's some sibling rivalry going on, or you know, but uh, it says that there's one time when James and Jude said to Jesus, well, why don't you go up to Jerusalem if you want to be made, you know, if you want to be well known, and it says in that passage that Jude didn't believe in him. That's why he said what he did. But he came to believe in his brother. I don't know what it took. And he obviously listened to his brother because there's a lot of teachings of Jesus in the book of Jude. But it's a very simple message. And I was this week, Jubilee's not in here. I, I have to be careful because you don't want to preach about 
your children to <laughs> use them as illustrations. But she's gone home. She was in the first service. And I can mention her a little bit more. Hopefully, won't be there. She does. She embarrasses a little easy. But um, we, she got her license this last year, and so we were going through the whole thing. And you know, I taught my other daughters. My daughter was right here on the keyboard. You remember I talked to her about her last week, maybe. Do you remember that? And she was little. She used to sing away in a manger, and she would write all kinds of words to the same tune, you know. And when I die, I go up to heaven, you know. <laughs> and so she had a soprano voice, even at early age, and so she would just sing as high as she could. And uh, now she, we have led worship together in various situations, and the favorite song that I've written that I love the most is the one that she sings, Sovereign Lord, on the demo that started all my writing career. But it's good to have her. and uh, She makes me cry because I love her so much, and she prays for me. And, and she has wonderful grandkids, and I love her husband, who we get to talk late hours at night about theological things, and I love sharing that with my sons-in-law's. I love Christmas. I love having everybody around. And uh, I love to party sometimes. You know, I don't sound like it sometimes. I love that being together. I love the relationships that God has blessed me with. And so anyway, back to Jubilee. I'll get back into that. I taught my daughters the first two how to drive. And really, Jody taught Jubilee. And uh, but I taught her how to parallel park because I'm a parallel parking expert in our family. But anyway, she took her test, and now the fateful day when you go to the insurance people and you meet with them. And and I've known my insurance company ever since I first started driving, which was quite a few years ago. And uh, he's sort of grown in the business, and he's got the same shop and the same place. But he has this thing he likes to do. He likes to bring in young drivers, you know and sort of put the fear of God in them, you know, or the fear of the road, or the fear of other drivers, or the fear of being, you know. He said, um, basically, he said, you know, within your hands is the power to totally bankrupt your family. You know, <laughs> those kind of things he's saying. Two out of three uh, young drivers have an accident in the first year. And usually it's because they're pulling around with other drivers in the high school parking lot, you know, those kind of things, but... He really had a burden. I, I think because I heard he told me one time that there was a gal who got a brand new car from mom and dad, new license, wrecked it, totaled it, and then they bought her another car and another brand new car, and she wrecked it too within like two or three months. And I was just listening to that. What kind of parents are these that give your kid a brand new car? Anyway, but I think he's seen so much that has gone wrong. You know, he told his story, a couple of different stories about people that got sued. And like I said, he had, was on a mission to kind of instill within her the responsibility of being behind the wheel. You know, if somebody gets in your car in Missouri, you're responsible for it. And he tells a story about somebody who got their fingers severed. And even they hadn't even been driving, and yet they were sued and all this stuff. So we get to the end, and he smiles. And, and then they tell you, like, your insurance is going to go up, like, 12 times <laughs> of its normal rate. And you, can, you bite the bullet and 
okay, we got the good student discount, we got this, and it's still going to be. But that's a part of growing up is encountering danger. And, and uh, I don't know, when I, when I read the words of Jude, I get the same kind of feel from Jude as I do from this insurance guy. He's got a simple message. There's just a few things he's going to say to us. But they are so important. They bubble up to the top of everything that Jude wants to say. And uh, so we're going to look at them this morning. I'm going to pray here, and then we'll jump into the book of Jude. There are no chapters in Jude. It's all verses because it's very short. But we will uh, look at that. Lord, we are thankful for your word. We're thankful for the message that you gave us. It's entrusted us. Lord, we want to feel the weight of responsibility for that message, and we want to we want to get it out, and we want our relationship to be with you what you intended, not just what we dream up in our hearts. We want the church to be defined by what you define it, not what we think would be a good idea. Lord, we just look to you for everything this morning, even in the words that I speak, and the words mostly that we read from you. We're asking for your grace here and your empowerment. In Jesus, we pray. Amen. We're in a battle today. I don't know if you noticed it, but this culture we live in, you look around, you see it, you see it coming. You see the waves of, of change. You see the disturbing news lines. You know, you, you feel the tension. You know, when you're little and you ride your bike to the grocery store and you're trading in pop bottles for Tootsie Roll, you're not thinking about the things you're thinking about this week. You have, you walk to school, and now the walk to school has changed, the society we live in. But it reminds me a lot of the times in the Old Testament and the, and the times of the New Testament. I mean, if you really think about it, you look back at those old times, and there were wars and rumors of wars, there were terrible things going on and among the people of Israel. There were terrible things that were going on in the Roman Empire. I mean, people being drugged out of their homes and taken off to, to be crucified in the Garden of Nero. Crazy things. And we've sort of been in a spell where we have enjoyed the blessings of God for so many years, haven't we? I mean, really. And now we look around and we wonder. It's because we have an enemy, and we're in a battle. And uh, especially in our culture, maybe not in other places in the world, maybe our, our excitement, our, our fervor has gone a little bit cold. Maybe we haven't been so bold in our advances. Maybe we've been a little cowered by the enemy. I don't know for all the reasons why. The kingdom of God isn't advancing in our culture, maybe because we've been so interested in the toys and the trinkets and, the, and enough food. Maybe the challenges of our faith aren't very overt. Maybe we'd be better if they were persecuting us more. But I just want to say this morning that the the schemes of the devil are not new. Ever since the beginning, he's always had certain strategies. He's always twisted the word of God. 
He's always changed meanings of words that we use when we talk about God. He'll redefine your father to be someone evil. So when you look at God, you'll say, well, I wouldn't want God, I wouldn't want a father. He'll change all kinds of things. In the Old Testament, he used idolatry and immorality and combined it with religion in a really weird kind of way. So that when Ezekiel digs to the temple and he looks in, he sees all of the terrible things where they've actually replaced God with idols and there's immorality going on, even in the people of God. And so his, the thing about Satan is he's had all of these centuries to practice his deception, all of these tricks that he pulls out that he uses over and over again. And yet, when we come to him, we're kids, we're teenagers. We don't know how to deal with the deception. We don't know how to deal with how he attacks our faith. Now, he's learned some things over the years, I think. I think he's less inclined to persecute us from the outside. I think he found when he tried to stomp on the church in the early days that it just sort of spread, and actually the believers became more bold. They became desperate to pray, and so they became more and more bold in their witness. And they began to spread all over the world, and there's no way to contain this. So he got another idea. He said, I'm not going to fight the church from without. And all the apostles make these statements like, the wolves are going to be inside the church. They're going to be among you, but they're not of you. They're like wolves in sheep's clothing. That's a much more effective strategy. And so part of what Jude is going to warn us about, and we're going to read the scripture, but is the fact that Satan wasn't as successful attacking the church from the outside, so he joined the church and decided to pervert its doctrines and to change its focus and to make it something different than God wanted it to be in many instances. I grew up in a time where the modernist movement sort of swept through all the universities and people no longer... I remember being with a preacher up in Kansas City when I was preaching up there. He was leading this little conference thing, and all of a sudden it dawned on me, uh, he's talking like he doesn't really believe in the resurrection. He doesn't really believe that Jesus really rose from the dead. And yet he was making all these grand statements about how on Easter Sunday morning we would drape the cross and then we would and then remove the drape and there's the victory. And I'm thinking, he's using empty words because he really doesn't believe that Jesus rose. How can you? It's, it's sort of like Paul says, how can, you, how can you have any power in a message where Jesus really didn't rise? It's just sort of some kind of ideology of victory or positive thinking or something else. It drains all of the meaning out when you change all the words and what they mean. So our universities who, like Yale, Harvard, who started out as Christian colleges, become filled with teachers that no longer believe in the validity of the scriptures or the authority, the historicity. And... Um, and it creeps in our culture, and it does it so slow that we don't even realize it. And it creeps into the church, and suddenly somebody's teaching 
on a YouTube video about how what you really thought about the gospel was all wrong. And really how this is how it is. And that's how it happens in the church. Well, let me look. I want to look with you at... Let's read this scripture together and jump in. In verse 3, he says these words. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were destined for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now there's some nuggets in there about what these teachers that come into the church, that Jesus even warned about, you know, when he was in his last days of ministry, he says there's going to come wolves among the flock, and they're going to try to change, and down through history, People have entered into the kingdom and tried to force it this way or that way, either by changing the theology that Jesus delivered. I want you to notice what he says there. I want to, he felt compelled. Jude has one message he wants. He, He says, I'm compelled to get you to hold on to this salvation, to hold on to this faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Now, this is a kind of a different use of the word faith than we normally think about. When we think about faith, the word faith and belief are synonymous in the scripture. It's one Greek word that's translated both ways, faith or believe, when I believe in Jesus. And so here it's used as a the faith. There's a definite article in front of it. And he's using it in in a term that's a little different that we think about when we think about it as a verb, I believe, or I trust in Jesus. It's talking about what Jesus delivered to us. It's, it's similar to what he says in Hebrews, where he says, this great salvation, you know, the old covenant was important, and it was delivered by angels, and you should listen to it. Yes, you should not lie, kill, steal, all the things. Yeah. But this new covenant that Jesus is bringing, this is brought about by the Son, he says it was it was declared first by the Lord, and then it was testified to by all those who heard him. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit. So all of these actions, not only what the Lord said, but those who testified about him, and then all the gifts and the miracles and the healing were for a purpose. They would put a stamp of authority on what was delivered to you and delivered to me. And that was the faith. The faith. The belief. The things about God that we know for sure. What do you believe about God? How is that shaped? Do you believe what your culture says about God? That he's anybody, you know, just he may be their their God or this God, or maybe he's just some impersonal force? Or do you believe what Jesus delivered? Because even the people of Jesus' day sort of struggle with the concept of God. He had to define God. In fact, Jesus, I think much of his ministry didn't call himself the Messiah and proclaim it openly for one purpose. He wanted to redefine what their thinking was. They thought it was really good to stand up in church and, and, and or the synagogues and, and be known and, and all this stuff. He says, no, go to your father who sees in secret. Because your father loves it when you do stuff only for him. 
because he's going to see it. It's different than what you've been taught. So Jesus was sort of redefining, re, you know, getting people back to the concept of God. So Jesus, in his teaching, in his ministry, he's defining God, he's defining himself, he's defining all of these things that maybe got a little bit drug away by other teaching and by the culture. So he wants us to contend for the faith. Hold on to what we receive. It, you know, it's interesting in, in the book of Revelation, all those letters that were written to the churches, it's sort of surprising to me how simple most of them are, and most of them sort of sit around, hold fast to what you got first. Don't leave your first love. Remember the stuff you did at the beginning? Remember when you first came to Christ? All the things you learned it was given to you? Hold on to that. Because that may be all you can do in this life, is hold on to what you know about God. Hold on to what you believe that's revealed by the Lord Jesus. And so, this salvation, this faith, is very important to Jew, and he wants us to guard it, to hold on to it, because it's going to be attacked. And that's what we see, and I talked about some of that. How does that happen? What kind of devices does Satan use? I'm not going to spend a lot of time because I don't like talking about him. But this is what he does. You need to be wise about what he will do. He will take the idea of grace and pervert it. This is what he's doing right now. He will tell you that grace is just God's way of paying for everything you do, and so you just live how you want to live. And he uses the word licentiousness. You know what a license is? It's like when you go and you take your driver's test and they give you a license and they allow you to go out and drive just any way you want to, right? Well, a license. But in the, in the way that it's being taught, it's like, you know, God will just forgive you and you just live how you want to live and whatever choices you make. After all, it's just God paying the bill. And when Paul is writing Romans... He says, now, you may be tempted to think when I talk about the grace of God, that this is what I'm talking about, that, that you may come to the conclusion, well, if God's just a loving God and it, and it brings glory to God to forgive sin, why don't we just sin a bunch and then God will be glorified? Let's sin that grace may abound, Paul says. But he's saying that's not what grace is talking about. And grace is expounded by Paul to even talk about the grace of God that was given him to take his name before the Gentiles. Seems like Paul's definition of grace is a whole lot richer than what we're sort of taught. Don't judge anybody, you know, and God doesn't judge you, and there's no hell. You see, that was started by theologians that thought, well, I don't really like the idea of God having judgment. So how can we get around that? And so one of the things that he does is he says, they pervert the grace of God into sensuality or licentiousness, or since God pays the bill, let's just live like we want to live. You can't judge anybody else, but that's not what God intended. 
Another thing they do is they operate out of a fleshly mind rather than the spirit. Now he's giving, he goes through the rest of this passage and he, he has all of these different stories from the Old Testament they would remember. He brings up, uh, you know, how they came just out of Egypt and because of their unbelief, they really didn't believe. I mean, if you have an example of God delivering and everything else, and yet they're wandering the wilderness and they say, well, God's not taking care of us. God's not taking care of us. And unbelief, and he tells them, go, I'm going to take you into the promised land. They say, no, God can't do it. And uh, those people are bigger than us, and their unbelief didn't lead them into a relationship with the Lord. They died in the wilderness. And then he mentions a guy named Balaam. And what was Balaam's there? You know what Balaam said? You know, there was a, a king of Midian that says, I want you to curse the Israelite people. And so Balaam tried to do it. And he even tried to bribe him, you know, get a prophet to God. If you just curse Israel, then we'll be able to overcome Israel. And so it finally got ridiculous. You know, Balaam's the one who rode the donkey, and he's going to prophesy to the king of Midian. And, and, uh, and the angel stands in front of him, but he can't see. And so the donkey, he's not going to go around this angel with a flaming sword. And, and uh, he's getting mad at the donkey. And the donkey turns around and he says, you know, I've served you all these years. And why are you getting mad at me? And it seems funny to me that the prophet looks at him and starts to answer the donkey without being going, the donkey just talked to me. Sort of like in the Chronicles of Narnia. He's a beaver. He's not supposed to talk to me. That kind of thing. But... Uh, in the middle of that, here's, here's the inside devious lie that, or actually it was a truth, but the devious mode that he says, now I can't curse Israel, but if you will get them to marry, intermarry with the other idolatrous people around them, then you'll cause them to stumble and then God will curse them. Isn't that awful? Maybe that's why Jesus said, if you're a stumbling block, it's better that you have a millstone put around your head and be sunk in the sea than cause anybody else to stumble. You don't want to cause other people to stumble. That is directly from the pit of hell. That's what the devil specializes in, is causing people to stumble. But that's one way that he does it. They don't operate out of a spiritual mind. They operate from this fleshly mind. My grandkids know about the word jackalope because that's what we call people who break into cars and steal. That's what we call people who attacked our house a few weeks ago and went in and ripped everything out and found the stuff that was valuable and, and took it. And it's always occurred to me, these criminal minds who try to figure out how, with all of their ingenuity and all their work, to go in and they're very good at what they do. They had to watch our house within an hour to get in and out and do take what they did and to get out without us knowing. And I'm thinking, if someone's that clever, can't they get an honest job? And they could be a CEO, you know, or these people that hack into systems and, and serve time because they're hacking into systems. With that kind of ingenuity, you could run the company. If you can break the codes, and yet there's this pull of the evil mind 
the pride of, I thought this through, I figured it out, and the flesh, the fleshly mind, even that attacks us sometimes when we think, we just got it all figured out, and if I just do this, it won't work out. And then sometimes, it, I think God just says, well, I'll let you, let you see how far you get with your own mind, with your ideas. Let's find a plan, let's find a, put the paper, the pencil, but you know, when David was doing the census and he was trying to figure out how strong his armies was, God said, well, I don't really like you thinking that it's because of your strong armies. And so he said, play it for To teach David a lesson, and David said, I'm sorry, I'm sinning. What's so bad about numbering how many fighting men you have? It's because in his heart he was trusting in his men rather than trusting in God. It was a lesson he learned all his life, and in the end of his life, what does he do? He, he gives up on what he knew for sure. Every battle that David fought, he said, the battle belongs to the Lord until this one. And then all of a sudden, you've got to figure out how many fighting men he has. No wonder the Lord was upset at him. And when the, we get in our minds that we've got this whole life figured out, and we leave God totally out of the picture, he doesn't deal with that. They destroy others for their own gain. They specialize in flattery and bribes for personal gain. They prefer their own dreamings rather than God's revelation. They blaspheme and rebel against divine authority. There's this mocking spirit in our society. People making fun of the devil. People making fun of the spiritual world. It's dangerous. God says even the angels don't do that. They don't make fun of the devil. They respect his destructive nature and power. So we shouldn't have this idea that we can make fun of spiritual things. We are in a battle that requires armor, according to Paul, so that we can stand in the day of battle. It's a serious thing. It's serious to Jude. He wants us to preserve the faith. He wants us to stand in the day of struggle. And Satan has his bag of tricks. He just gets better and better at it. We happen to be the generation that's the latest one he's trying it on. So we look at the world around us and we wonder, are we holding on to the faith? But I want to get to the last part of it. Because this, to me, is the most important part. So if... This idea of grace is not just about freeloading on God. If it's not just using the advantage of being forgiven so that we can just serve ourselves. If it's not that concept, what is it? I want to read on in the verses, in verse 17, he says, But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles and of our Lord. And I mentioned before that Peter warned about this, and also Jesus said, wolves would come among us. And in verse 18 he says, They said to you in the last time, there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions. Worldly people, devoid of the Spirit, 
That's the key. When all we do is operate out of our sinful nature, our flesh, instead of the spirit. Here's the difference between this group of people who are dividing the body, who are twisting the ideas about God and grace. And then there's this other people that are led by the Spirit of God. These are the sons of God. These are the ones that are crying, Abba, Father. They know their relationship with God. They know the truth that is revealed. They have the Spirit of God living inside of them. So when they come up to a situation, they're not thinking, what's the most clever thing to do? They're saying, God, what do I do? I don't know what to do, Lord. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. Show me what to do. And then God helps them understand the way. He gives them the wisdom in the hour. If anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask God, James says. So the spirit inside of us is our mode of operation. No longer are we responding just because we're hungry, just because we feel like doing something, just because we came up with something in our own head. Instead, we go to God and to his spirit. When we pray, we pray in the spirit of God. Asking his guidance, his leading, help us do what is right. Paul tells us, before the day of the Lord comes, there will be a great falling away. You know that? A great falling away, a great apostasy. The Thessalonians and the man of sin will be revealed. Kind of scary words. And Jesus himself said, most men's love will Those words haunt me. Most people. The way is broad that leads to destruction. Most people are going to miss it. That's sad. But here, we get to go into verse 20 now. Okay, I'm glad we're done with that. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith. He uses that word again. In your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. So he gives us these, a couple of these nuggets here in the beginning. Build yourself up in the most holy faith. How do we do that? Jesus said that if you want to follow me, here's what you did. You listen to my words, you comprehend them, you understand them, you put them into practice, and you'll be like a man that is planted. You'll be like your feet are planted on the rock. You like built a house that's on a rock. So when the wind comes and the rain comes, it washes away other foundations. Yours is built on the rock. So when the storms of this life come, you're not thinking, oh, what am I going to do? Or what, uh, what do I got to do? You're thinking, God, what am I do? You're thinking, God's got this. All the things that you've learned, that Jesus has delivered to you, that he spoke from his mouth, that all the, te- the apostles have testified. All the, Don't you know you have a heavenly father who knows the birds and he feeds them? Well, he's going to take care of you. So your mind goes there instead of, oh, what do I do? What do I do? You don't say, call for the rocks, cover me from the face of the almighty God. You're saying, come Lord Jesus. Save us, deliver us. It's a whole different life. So the faith, and then the prayers. Pray in the Holy Spirit. What does it mean to pray in the Holy Spirit? 
What's the job of the Holy Spirit? Jesus said he'll reveal all the truth to you. Some things that Paul says about the Holy Spirit. He says, you know, the Holy Spirit, when you, when you just come to that place where you don't even have the words to know what to ask God, in fact, you don't even know what to ask because you don't even have any idea of the solution. He says, the Holy Spirit comes alongside of you and he prays with words, groans, that you don't have the capacity for. Isn't that kind of cool? Because God lives inside of you and he knows exactly what you're dealing with. He's, he wants to be that hand inside the glove of your life. He, we are the dwelling place of God in the Spirit. And he lives inside of us so he feels what we feel. He knows what we know. Before a word is on our tongue, it says he knows it all together. And so the Holy Spirit can just go, well, Phil doesn't know what to ask, but this is what Phil needs. But you give it to Phil. What a beautiful thing the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit also says, Jesus says, he's going to take what is mine, he's going to give it to you, make known to you, and give it to you. And so part of the job of the Holy Spirit in us is to change us from the inside out. The Holy Spirit will do in our lives what we can never do by ourselves. He said, I'm going to put a new spirit within you. He didn't say, I'm just going to give you another law to obey. He said, I'm going to put a spirit within you, a different spirit. I'm going to change this heart of stone. I'm going to create a heart of flesh in you. He says in Jeremiah, he says, and the result of this is you're going to walk in my statutes. He's not saying you better walk in my statutes. He says the result of living this new covenant life is that we will walk the way God wants us to walk. It will be a spiritual process where God is not only just interested in forgiving our sins, that's huge, but he's also interested in transforming us into the image of Christ. That's his real goal. Forgiveness is just the beginning. That's the elementary things. Yeah, you're forgiven, but God has a whole destiny for you. Remember Jesus, you know, these two things remind me of what Jesus said in John records, John 15, he said, remember, I am the vine, you're the branch. Okay. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Okay. He's not just talking about salvation. He's talking about living a life that's connected to Jesus. Where Jesus is directing, just like the other illustration of the head and the body, Jesus is directing the body. He says the hand to do this, and the hand doesn't. The hand doesn't go, I don't want to do that. The hand doesn't. This, if you're really linked to the Lord, He's going to change what you do in your life. If you are fastened to the vine, you're going to bear fruit without even realizing. All of a sudden, you're going to look back over your life and say, you know, I used to be a really grumpy person, but somehow God has changed me. My, one of my son-in-laws was telling me he cries more. I said, just get used to it. The older you get, when you have kids, you start crying. I don't know what it is. You, they come up to you and they give you these hugs around your neck, and all of a sudden you're in tears and you don't realize it. And the longer you live, my dad was, he wasn't that kind of emotional guy in the beginning, but I remember as he got older and older and older, so much meaning in life would just stir him. 
move him. And I feel that same process happening in me. The older I get, the more meaning there is in life. The more when I see, when I realize what it means for somebody to come to the Lord, it moves me more than it ever did. When I realize that God has made a place for me in heaven when I was 25, heaven. But now that I know so many more, and I just got to tell you this morning, we have another sister who's gone to be with the Lord, Cindy Lemire. I saw her on Friday. We went there and I saw her in the hospital, her smile on her face. She'd just gone through surgery. She was very alert, which lasted, I don't know how long, but I prayed for her. And uh, but now she is in the presence, like he's going to say here a little bit, standing in the presence of Almighty God, realizing all of the promises of God beautiful thing. But the older we get, the sweeter heaven is. My mom and dad are there. I want to see them again. I want to talk to my uncle. I want to talk to my grandma that had a crazy ball when she says, you're crazy kids. I want want her to tell me her story again. And uh, everything changes when you're connected to the body. Your whole life changes when you hold fast to the vine, the faith, and when you pray in the Spirit. And then when you start working on those that are around you that God wants, puts on your heart. And he says a few things here. Have mercy on those who doubt. I've got some people in my life who are in serious doubt right now that are very close to my heart. And so I have to be patient. I have to rely on God's mercy and work gently with them. And then there's others that you better get in there and save them. Because the house is on fire and you need to grab them. And, and the scriptures tell us that open rebuke is better than hidden love. So if somebody's dying in a house, you need to go into the house and grab them and say, let's get out of here. Don't you realize? And some people are ready for that. Some people know that their house is on fire. And so all you have to do is say, let's get out. They'll go, okay, I want to get out. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garments stained by the flesh. There's some sin that is dangerous to you if you have weakness in that area too. So you be careful when you're helping others that you don't get sucked in to what they're involved in. Powerful words, but simple words. I'm reminded of Jesus and his teaching in these words. Can it be that simple? Remember when the days of the early church when there's a problem came up in the church and the widows weren't being taken care of and they're saying, everybody started talking to the apostles and the apostle says, you need to start handling this and and the apostle said, uh, choose seven men that can take care of this issue in the church because we need to do two things. We need to, this faith, we need to get it out there. The word. We need to minister in the word and we need to be praying. Prayer? Yeah, pray. We need to be praying. And we need to be ministering the word. Those are the two priorities of those apostles in the early days of the church. It certainly ought to be our priorities today in a world that is crumbling around the world. 
or values and things are changing and all the attacks that come within and without on the church. We need the, the word of God, the faith that was delivered and prayers. Reminds me of the words of Jesus when he said, just as the Father has loved me. There's this little phrase in here, keep yourselves in the love of God. How do you keep yourself in the love of God? So we're talking about this relationship. He's not saying you. Because Jesus says, let me, let me just read what Jesus said. Just as the Father has loved me, I have loved you. Abide in my love. This means sometimes Jesus loves us or doesn't. I don't think that's what he's talking about. If you keep my commandments, you abide in my love, just as I kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Is there ever a time where God didn't love Jesus? I don't think so. I don't think that's what he's talking about. He's talking about abiding in his love. It's, he wants this relationship with us, like I said, the glove, where he just moves and we move. He wants that love relationship of a father and a son. I want you to love each other desperately from the heart. He wants us to love each other and to love God like God loves him and he loves God. And there's this prayer that just sort of circles around in John 17 where it says, you know, in the Father and you and them. And, I mean, it just seems to go in circles and repeating concept over and over. It just Jesus is so intent on his last prayer that we have recorded that, that God give them what that he has with God. I want the same relationship with them that, that I have with you. And, and he just, it's like he just keeps pouring out these words of the same idea. Be in them as I'm in you and you're in me. And, and then John, his disciple that he loved, wrote these words. He says, by this we know, in 1 John 5, he says, by this we know the love of God, uh, the love, by this we know we love the children of God when we love God and observe his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. This is not another law. His commandments are different. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith. So this love connection with God is the answer. A relationship where Jesus said, love each other as I have loved you. This is part of that faith that he delivered us. So, I'm just going to end with this doxology. Let's contend for the faith. Let's pray in the Holy Spirit. Let's keep loving others. Let's save some from the fire. Let's just keep on this course that Jesus gave us the key. And I'm just going to pray this doxology. You can say it along with me if you want to. We'll pray it together and then we're going to worship with a few songs. And we'll be done this morning. Let's pray together. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, 
through Jesus Christ our Lord. Be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever.